0: Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa
1: Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you.
0: Good morning, Lisa. Welcome to episode 40. Good morning, Melissa. So I want to start out with a little question for you today. Have you ever had a situation with one of your kids where you were in public And they were behaving in a way that was not typical for a child their age. And you understood what was going on, but you knew the people around you did not. And they were attributing his behavior either to your rotten parenting or him just not being a great kid. Has this ever happened to you?
1: Absolutely. I I mean, the list of times in public of this not happening, probably shorter, (laughs) (laughs) I have this one really (laughs) distinctive memory. Well, first of all, let me preface that the particular child that this happens often with in our home is also very small for his age. So I think we've been sheltered by some of this because people actually think he's two or three years younger than he actually is. And so that's actually been really helpful for our family. But when he first came home, the first thing we did when we got off the plane was buy a leash And I had always judged people. So on the flip side of this question is I always would judge families who were having trouble with their kids in public before having our first hard child. So I was on the flip side of this. But I remember buying this leash because I was literally terrified that I wasn't going to be able to get him from our van to our front door of our house without him getting hit by a car. We're a homeschooling family and we went to the library a ton. And so I remember this time shortly after he came home where he had his little backpack leash on. It was one of those like, you know, stuffed animal backpack things with a leash. We had a name for him. His name was Darson. We went into the library and my son just hated having this leash on. And so he ran all the way to the end of it until it like jerked him backwards. He flopped on the floor and just started screaming at the top of his lungs in the library. (laughs)
0: Awesome.
1: And I just remember being so mortified, you know, that this kid who looked like he should understand, you know, library behavior was, you know, thrashing around on the floor at the end of a leash, no less, because I already knew how I had thought about leashes before I was in this situation. And I could just imagine what the other parents of preschoolers were thinking about me with this kid on a leash who was thrashing (laughs) around on the other side, screaming at the top of his
0: lungs. So yes. Right. These are hard moments. We had a moment when um Calkey Dunn had been home maybe just a little more than a year and we actually went to Disney World if you can imagine. She she actually had a make a wish trip which was really sweet and I'm so so thankful now for that. But um we went to Disney World and I actually got a phone call from our adoption agency because we were in the process of adopting our next daughter and so Russ had the kids by himself. And she got very upset with one of her sisters and started slapping her and hitting her. And so Russ was holding her. And she was pretty small, but he was holding her. And she was screaming and flailing. And this is in Disney World. And a security guard came over. So you can imagine, not only were we stressed about the people but we were also stressed about this like official looking guy and what was he thinking and yeah it's really tough and you can't say to all of these people excuse me for a moment my daughter has complex developmental trauma and you know she's been triggered by this you can't say any of this you know and I think it's tough I think it's tough for us as moms.
1: Yeah I mean it would almost be quote easier right if there was a physical, a more physical outward manifestation of what they were struggling with, right? We don't judge kids in wheelchairs for not walking, but we certainly judge kids who have, you know, a disorder that has affected their brain function, which is also a physical part of our body, an organ, and their symptom of that is behaviors. Um, just like we we don't um, judge families who need to monitor their children who have type one diabetes, right. Or right. give them insulin or something like that. So it's just tough when it's kind of what we've deemed invisible disabilities. Um, and it's made me, I know a lot more compassionate, um, looking out into the world, knowing that there are these invisible disabilities walking around. Just, I was not a naturally kind of compassionate person before all of this. So, uh, so th- <laughs> this week, This is, invisible disability is something that our guest this week chats about. Um, We invited Eileen Devine to be our guest this week. She is an expert on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, FASDs, as we'll talk about in the interview. And she has been trained and mentored by a lady named Diane Malbin, who wrote a fantastic book called Trying Differently Rather Than Harder. If you think or suspect at all that your child may have been exposed prenatally to any type of substance. This is a fantastic book. It's also a great book if your child just struggles in general. Eileen is also an instructor for the Postmaster's Certificate in Adoption and Foster Therapy um, at Portland State University's Child Welfare Partnership. And she has also been trained in collaborative problem solving, which you'll be able to tell in our interview. She is a super compassionate person and does a great job of kind of enumerating for us some of the behaviors that we see in our kids um, who have brain differences, not just from fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So if your child hasn't been formally diagnosed or or you're pretty sure they haven't been exposed prenatally, this is still a really great lesson because the resources and the tools that um, Eileen talks about are applicable for all of our kids who struggle.
0: Absolutely. And I actually have that book sitting here right next to me. I bought it a little while ago and I really need to read it. So, Yes, I'm really excited to hear this interview with Eileen.
2: Hi, Eileen. Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I mean, selfishly,
1: when you have a podcast, the great thing is you get to pick your guests. And this is a topic that has been really personal to our family because our son received a formal diagnosis a couple summers ago. And so of course that drove me like headlong. I'm one of those like researchy parents that like kind of gets on the internet and gets on Facebook and finds all the groups and all the things. So I'm really excited about talking to you and just finding out even more just for myself. So
2: good. That's wonderful. And I similarly have a child with fetal alcohol syndrome and got started in this work in a very similar way. I wanted to learn everything I could. And the the information that I first stumbled across in those Google searches and research was actually not very helpful to me. Um, so I'm excited to hopefully maybe even present a different perspective to those parents who have done that research and have said, you know, this isn't, this isn't what I'm looking for. I'm still missing information. Hopefully they might hear something that's helpful for them today too.
1: Yeah, I love that. So did you feel like the missing information was like actual information or do you feel like there was... Like there was hope missing. Like there wasn't. There weren't
0: answers.
2: Yep, both. So I felt like the information was um, very much about this is everything that your child is going to be highly vulnerable to and at risk for as they get older. And these are all of the behavioral challenges that it's very likely you'll see in them at one point or another. And oh, by the way, a loving, caring environment is the solution. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought to myself, with all humility, it doesn't get any more caring and loving than the house we have. (laughs) I thought we were doing a pretty good job in that department and it was not working. So that doesn't leave parents with much to go on, right? If you're giving your child as much love and care and using those very good parenting techniques that maybe work with, say, a neurotypical child that you have but is failing miserably, miserably with them, that information about describing behaviors and, oh, these are the challenges that they're going to have, keep an eye out for them, does, does nothing to instill hope or help the parent feel like they have anything that they can actually do about it to help their child um, navigate their world in a more successful way. So back
1: up just a little bit, can you tell us, for those parents who maybe aren't as familiar. And I know for a long time this wasn't even on my radar. So kind of what are some of the common signs of fetal alcohol exposure? Or can you tell us just a little, like give us a basic primer of what this even is?
2: Yes. So that's that's actually one of the most confusing pieces about the diagnosis because when we look at what fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is, it's a physical disability with behavioral symptoms. So the brain is a physical part of our body, right? We know that based in it's based in neuroscience research that alcohol causes changes to the function and the structure of the brain. So there's no question about that. That's not just my hunch. <laughs> it's based on research. And so when there's changes in the structure and the function of the brain, then behaviors, which are directly connected to brain function, are going to be different. And what I mean by different, they could be challenging, more intense, confusing, bizarre, all of those things that parents describe in their children. So where it gets confusing is that we don't often look at behaviors as symptoms, right? We look at them as intentional, willful misbehavior. So if we can't, if we don't have that information about the brain function connection to take a step back and say, oh, this looks like a symptom of a brain difference, that disability, um, then it will get missed entirely. The other thing that I would say about confusing, what does this look like? What gets confusing in that question is that there are a lot of kiddos that have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders who have a normal or above average IQ. So they're able to make it through school academically fairly easily, but they have these significant challenges with what seems to us to be seemingly easy brain tasks, right? So maybe they have difficulty in friendships, they have difficulty planning and organizing their day, they can't do more than one step at a time, and so that there too is a disconnect for parents, right? It makes it even more invisible that this is actually a physical disability.
1: Yeah, I love what you said, often confusing. I'm an engineer, and so I really like logic. And what we've realized is that there's just no rhyme or reason. And like you said, like there could be a strength in one area, and then this like complete lack of function in another area. And because it's a spectrum disorder and because... Alcohol exposure affects brain at different parts of fetal development. Every child could have different varying degrees of dysfunction. So they don't even all look alike. And so there's just no good rhyme or reason for any of this, which drives me insane.
2: (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right. So I work with a lot of families who have more than one child in their family that has been exposed prenatally to alcohol. Even when they have that diagnosis for both their kids, their kids present very differently. So, and, and you've, you've described exactly why that is. So our brain does everything for us all day long. There's no behavior that's not connected to brain function, right? And so if a brain is impacted, It could present in sensory system dysregulation, it could present in executive functioning, could maybe the child has language and communication problems, but it doesn't mean that every child with fetal alcohol experiences challenges in every single one of those areas. So that's a lot of the work that I do is helping parents understand that brain behavior connection and then what does it mean for your child, right? How do you kind of whittle away all the information doesn't apply to them and really focus on what rises to the top in terms of brains working differently and what is especially challenging for your child.
1: So are there any myths around fetal alcohol exposure in terms of how much exposure causes symptoms?
2: There's a lot. (laughs) 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 We could spend a whole hour, more than an hour talking about that. So you'd have to be living under a rock not to hear at least pieces of it. Of course, I'm immersed in this world a lot more than most people. And so I hear a lot of the, the chatter about it. But there's no denying that alcohol impacts the developing fetus. And what experts have said recently in the last few years, there's been research that has basically led them to the determination that no amount of alcohol is safe. That's their kind of bottom line. Now, the timing of it, the amount, the, all of that kind of stuff we're not able to, the researchers aren't able to come to definitive conclusions on, well, what about this timing or that timing or this amount of this amount? All they can tell us is that no amount is safe, right? And that the sooner that a birth mom um, stops drinking, then the better chance their child has in terms of brain development, right? So um, that would be a logical conclusion, I think, for most of us. But what most people think, because providers often tell them like, oh, one drink is okay that there's nothing wrong with that, or my mom drank and look at me, I'm fine. You know, you hear that a lot too. Um, There's also different ideas about who in our society um, is most at risk for having kids that are impacted by fetal alcohol, right? We all have an idea of who that person is in our head when we hear about those moms where this happens, when actually what research has shown us is that those, the women who are most likely to drink during pregnancy are, are my cohort, so women who are 35 to 41 years old, higher education, middle class, upper middle class, um, Caucasian. So that's, that's not typically what we think um, when we think about, well, who are these women and who are these children, right? So there's a lot of myths out there. Our society has a very curious relationship with alcohol, right? So it can get pretty heated pretty quickly. People have strong opinions about it.
1: That's so interesting. Along that track, because... Of the different ranges of behaviors, and you know some of the newer research, it, it takes a little while to catch up to even practitioners in everyone's areas, right? I know you're in this every day, but talk to me a little bit about the actual formal diagnosis and what that means. Is it important if we just think that our child might have been exposed and we get the resources we need to, you know, adjust? our parenting and things like that, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Is that enough? Is there a reason why you would want to go after a diagnosis? You know, what does that look like?
2: Mm-hmm. So I think that anytime that you can identify something accurately and name it, then you know better what to do about it, right? So I think anytime that you can get a diagnosis, it's helpful for a lot of reasons. Being able to say, okay, this, is, this gives me information I was missing and now I know better what's going on for my child lots of different um, service qualifications and benefits and that kind of thing depend on a formal diagnosis. So that's important too. A lot of these kiddos have very confusing histories. And what I mean by that is that um, maybe the prenatal substance use, it's unclear whether that actually happened or not, if the parents don't have a clear history, but they have all of these behaviors that are incredibly challenging. So they get a long list of diagnoses and What that says to me when I'm working with a family whose child has a long list of diagnoses in their short lifetime is that there's confusion among providers in terms of what's going on with this child and that nobody has taken a step back to consider brain function. So I do think it's incredibly important to get that diagnosis if you're able. Now, at the same time, a lot of families don't have that confirmed prenatal use, which you need for a formal diagnosis. And so then they're always asking the question, well, was it that, was it that? And they have this desperate need to know, and I completely understand that as a parent. And what I encourage them to do is try to suspend that need to know as much as they can and really look at the brain as the brain. So if we have these challenging behaviors and we know that behaviors belong in the brain, there's always brain connection, then can we start to make that connection no matter what the source is, right? There's all different kinds of reasons why the brain can be changed in structure and function. It's not just alcohol. It's not just prenatal drug exposure. I mean, there's trauma, traumatic brain injury, you know, traumatic birth, all of those kinds of things can cause changes to the brain and the symptoms look the same. That's what gets so confusing. So for those families, I say, you know, I know the need to know is so great. I understand that. But if for the, for the purposes of learning how to understand your child differently and parent them differently, if we can just take that step back and know that the brain is the brain and that the behaviors are the symptoms, then that is enough, right? That's enough of a starting point to get on this road of parenting differently from this neurobehavioral perspective.
1: Yeah. What wise words and helpful words, because sometimes those definitive diagnoses are elusive. Like you said, you know, sometimes you can run through the alphabet before you get some answers. And even then, you know, it's, still kind of with a grain of salt, I feel like. So you mentioned this neurobehavioral approach and you've been a huge advocate of that and a great student of it. Can you tell us a little bit about like what that is? What does that look like? What does it mean?
2: Yeah, so this is the foundation to all of the work that I do. And I think it's really important for parents to understand this because it kind of sets the foundation in terms of moving forward with this different paradigm, this different parenting paradigm. Um, So the neurobehavioral model says that if we know that every behavior is connected to brain function, which again is based in neuroscience research, and if we also know that prenatal substance exposure, alcohol exposure in this case, changes the brain and structure and function, then it would only make sense that the symptoms of that would be behavior. We would see behaviors that were not typical, right? And oftentimes, again, those are challenging, bizarre, distressing behaviors because we know that the brain has been changed in um, structure and function, that's a physical part of our body, then we must look at fetal alcohol as a physical disability. And just like any other physical disability in our world, it's only right and just that we provide kiddos with that diagnosis with accommodations, just like we would a child who's blind, a child who's in a wheelchair, that sort of thing. Now, again, the confusing piece, the tricky piece comes in that our brain is invisible to us, right? Except for these behavioral symptoms. We need to constantly remind ourselves as parents, like, okay, this behavior that's very aggravating to me, very triggering to me, how can I take this step back, slow down my reaction to the behavior and consider brain function? Where might the poorness of fit be? So if we see behaviors that are super distressing, really out of control, aggressive, that sort of thing, disruptive, um, asking that question, Where's the poorness of fit? If this child was settled in their environment, if they had expectations that met their that where they are in terms of cognitive skills and their ability to complete brain tasks, then they'd be settled in their environment. They wouldn't be always in this state of dysregulation. So there must be a poorness of fit here, and it's on the parents or the adult that's in charge of that environment to figure out where that poorness of fit is, so that they can adjust the expectations, put in those accommodations, and the child can settle their environment and that is the steep learning curve (laughs) learning how to do that stay in the course knowing what you're looking for that's all of the teaching and of this model that's where the hard work for the parents come in it's it's a it's a journey
1: (laughs) oh my gosh it's such a journey and you named something that's been you know just rolling around in my head which is gosh if he was in a wheelchair (laughs) Then at least I'd have this physical reminder, and I, you know, I would mm-hmm. imagine and hope that I'm a big enough person that if I had a child in a wheelchair, I wouldn't spend all day wishing like, "Oh, I'll just get up and walk." <laughs> or be right. frustrated. I mean, I know it could be frustrating, but I feel like I would have this this expectation that understood that that was not going to happen, even when I was frustrated with where we were. And I feel like that has been such a hard thing to get my mind around in terms of this whole. Yes brain injury, physical disability. My child has a physical disability that I just can't see to get mm-hmm. around. And and I also love what you have said also, which is there are so many reasons why there's a physical brain change in our children, even if you're not sure that there was substance exposure prenatally. And a lot of our kids have early complex trauma, you know, relationship breaks, Mm -hmm. changes in primary caregiver, stressful pregnancies, stressful births, and all of them can be seen with a physical brain disability, which could radically change how we interpret behaviors.
2: Right. Yes, absolutely. Because if we start to see the behaviors as symptoms of a disability, then that naturally leads us down this path to support them and to provide the com- accommodations, be sympathetic, be empathetic. If we see behaviors as willful and intentional, and they're doing this to us, right? Then that leads us down this entirely different path to punish, exert our control, give consequences. There's lots of reasons why those techniques do not work and actually make things worse with these kiddos. The, the, when you were talking about your own experience and being reminded, and oh, if, if my child was in a wheelchair you know, would I be thinking, of course, I wouldn't be thinking this way. I was working with this family once that was like, just killing it, learning this model, implementing it in their house. I mean, they were working really hard and seeing results. And then they were going to have a family gathering where grandparents were coming in from out of town. And the mom said, I just want to say like, just for this one family dinner, it's really important. Can you just like, keep your, you know, calm and sit here through dinner and not disrupt things. And And she said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, if your child was in a wheelchair and your in-laws were coming from out of town and you had this big family dinner, would you say to your child, just walk up these steps, just while grandpa's here, just walk up these steps this few time, please. And then I won't ever ask you to do it again. Right. And she just laughed because it's a ridiculous even scenario. Right. (laughs) But in my mind, it's, it's the same thing. It's a physical disability. We're asking them to do something that they are not capable of doing, right. Unless they have a lot of added support, a lot of accommodations to kind of tolerate that environment. But it's really foreign when you think about it with the brain. So, you know,
1: say I was a family that you were helping and I said, you know, look, my, my son, I I know he knows the rules. In fact, he told me the, the other day, you know, I act differently um, when I'm at Nana and Pops's because I know they don't quite know, you know, I know I can read a different book there, I can... You know, get away with something. And it's again, it seems so willful because he's like, Look, I've been thinking about this. I know if I go somewhere else, you know, it, the support's different, oversight is different. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we reconcile things that seem so willful, but then are still a function of brain
2: mm-hmm.
1: science right. and brain function?
2: Right. That's where I think it's really helpful for parents to understand exactly what our brain does for us every day. So we're really clear on some of those things like executive functioning is one that most people are familiar with, like planning and organizing our day, right? Making sure that we make it to appointments on time, all of that kind of stuff. But there's some other um, things that our brain helps with us that don't, don't seem so apparent until you actually learn them. And so one of the things is being able to know the rule, recite the rule, and then never apply it to your own Um, Behavior, right? So they can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. Super, super common and really, really confusing, then, right? He told me exactly what he was supposed to do. Why didn't he do it? It must be willful behavior. But what if they can recite it to you, but they cannot take that and apply it to their own behavior? Super common, right? Or the idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. We expect by a certain age that kids will be able to do that, that that skill has developed. And I have families who say to me, I don't know that my child is capable of empathy. Maybe the child's 12, 13, 14, right? And they're not able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. And so we talk about, well, what does the brain have to do in order for a child to be able to do that? They have to, to understand that somebody has a different perspective, they have to be able to kind of hold that other perspective at the same time holding their own. It gets complicated really, really fast. Um, So I think that it really does, again, go back to brain function, all of the different detailed ways that our brain helps us throughout the day. And then where that disconnect is for them, where their brain is not working. Like we, you know, we being kind of neurotypical society, how our brains work. The other thing that I would say um, about this idea of doing differently in different environments is I have a lot of families that say my child does well at school, holds it together, does what they're supposed to and then comes home and things are they, they melt down, they blow up, they just come unglued and I always say well that's a strength right that they can actually hold it together in another environment all day long and also they're maxed. That cognitive load is so great for them all day that they don't have any more brain fuel, so to speak, to, to make it through their evening. And so then the question is, well, how do we get other people in those other environments to understand that? So letting the teacher know, I know that he appears to be doing okay, but he's working harder than anyone else in his class just to make it through the day and realize like which ways up and which way is down and kind of keep up with the class. Can we do some things to reduce his cognitive load during the day so that he can make it through the evening too, right? And so that example you give of grandparents' house versus your house, that kind of thing, it could be a product of that as well. And just that ability that you articulated for a child to reflect on, well, this is, this is why this environment is different for me. A lot of kids with fetal alcohol cannot do that. And so we're left again, kind of on our own to put the pieces together and do this detective work and figure out, okay, what exactly is going on in this invite this particular environment for my child, where is the disconnect between brain function and the expectations and how can I help accommodate and adjust so that they can settle in their environment?
1: Yeah. And, and I know the list of accommodations is probably a mile long. And like we've talked about, because it's a spectrum disorder, all of our kids look a little bit different, which means that detective work leads us to different combinations and types mm-hmm. of accommodations. Yes. So can you give just a couple examples of kind of really common things that you see kind of mostly across the board and kind of what mm-hmm. it, what does it look like to look at a behavior, understand that it's a product of a brain injury and then accommodate common mm-hmm. so that everyone feels more successful?
2: So I'll, I'll talk about a few things that are really common to fetal alcohol that I see with almost every family that I work with, and then say a little bit about, too, how developing accommodations comes about. Dismaturity. Dismaturity is the gap between developmental age and chronological age, okay? So a child is not acting immaturely. They are a different age developmentally. So with dismaturity, that's classic FASD. I've never, ever worked with a family that their child doesn't have this. And a safe starting point is to take the chronological age and divide it in half. Us as parents remembering that our child is half their age developmentally, that in and of itself is an accommodation. So we have, for in in the case of my daughter, a 10-year-old child who is really a mature 4-year-old. That's how I describe her. That is a very different set of expectations. That's a different lens to see those behaviors through socially and emotionally and the challenges with friendships and making friends and keeping friends, that all looks very different for a four-year-old than a 10-year-old, right? So that in and of itself is an accommodation. Whenever I'm working with a family, we always start, I always ask over and over again, how old is your child developmentally? Just so that we can begin to see them through that lens. Another really common characteristic is slow processing speed. So I I often encourage families to think that verbal is agitating. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that all talking is agitating to these kiddos. But what do we do when a child is misbehaving or needs some intervention from us? We usually launch in with talking, right? And if they have slow processing speed, which most of these kiddos do, and they cannot process what we're saying, make sense of it, hold it in their head, figure out what they think about it, that's going to be overwhelming to them. And so if you think about a 10-second child in a one-second world, that's a great way to describe these kids. And if you think about 10 seconds and how long that is, it's no exaggeration in terms of how much more processing time they need to even process what we're saying, how they're feeling, answering a question, all of that kind of stuff. It gets very complicated very quickly. All the different parts of the brain that are required um, to answer simple questions. Another really common characteristic is um, having on and off days. So this is one of these really confusing pieces. You have a child who is able to do what you've asked them to do, whatever those expectations look like um, on Monday, and that's an A day for them, right? They're firing on all, all cylinders. They're able to do it. Wednesday is an F day. They cannot do any of those things to save their life. They're working just as hard as they were on the A day, they cannot do it. There's lots of brain-based reasons why that might be the case. And but as parents, we say, "Well, they did it Monday. What are you telling me they can't do it Wednesday? It must be willful, di- willful disobedience, right?" No, these kids, totally classic FASD, have on and off days. Yeah. The last oh thing gosh, that I'll say. That all the
1: time. And what? So real <laughs> quick, can I stop you real quick? Like, is there? Like, a- I can keep going and going and going. <laughs> I know. Is there a really simple like two... S- sentence explanation for why, like, there's so many things about brain development and exposure that I understand in terms of how it affects a certain system and why mm-hmm. it would affect a system. But like, I have never been able to get my mind around like the on day and off day that, you know, it one day, you don't know it the next, you know, it the next day, you don't know it the next.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So it's all under memory and learning. So I, I always think of these brain tasks as divided up into kind of nine categories and it helps make sense of kind of all of this information so it's really under memory and learning and i think of it as a filing cabinet where one day we file information away and one day we can find it and we bring it back up and we use it how we need it and everything's fine and good and then another day we're looking for it looking for it we can't we we're sure we filed it somewhere we can't find it it's the same with our brain right one day that they're able to whoop, there it is pull it back up use it how it's supposed to and the next day for whatever reason They can't, for the life of them, figure out where that information was stored, whether they ever had it to begin with. Their brain is just not working in the way that it needs to in order to take that information that they did learn at one point and bring it back up and use it. So I think of, you know, we all have, um, we are all on this wide, wide spectrum of neurodiversity, right? No two brains are the same. And so all of these things that we're talking about are not necessarily unique to people with FASD. We all have foggy days, we all get bad sleep and then we're, you know, kind of grumpy the next day or we can't think how we need to be thinking, all of that kind of stuff. But what is, what is unique is the frequency and the, the intensity by which it happens with these kids. So instead of us just having an off day every once in a while that we can recover from pretty easily if we just, you know, get a good cup of coffee and a good night's sleep the next night, these kids, it's all day, every day, it's tripping them up. So that's the unique piece of it. Okay.
1: That makes a lot of sense. You said that there were like nine areas. Are are you willing to share what those nine areas are?
2: Sure. Yeah. And there's lots of details under these headings. So, and we obviously won't have time to get into that, but just so the folks who are listening know that there's a lot more detail to it than I'm going to provide now. But um, if we look at primary characteristics, so that's our best indication of how the brain is working differently. So we wanna start looking at these categories so that we can say what rises to the top for our kids, right? So dismaturity is one of them. Younger, socially, emotionally, right? That's the first piece. Executive functioning is another one, right? So do they get stuck in behavioral loops? Do they have a hard time transitioning? Um, Are they unable to think flexibly? You know, all of that kind of stuff. There's lots in executive functioning. Um, Abstract thinking, so putting themselves in someone else's shoes. Math, making change, all of that kind of stuff falls into this category. Um, Being able to see the gray in situations, right, instead of just the black and white. Um, I talked about memory and learning. That's another category. One of the things under that category also is um, being able to do one step at a time versus two or three or four. Even kids who are like adolescent age, what if they're very good listeners, but they listen slowly? and they can only do one step at a time versus four or five, what we would expect from a child that age. That's, different. That's the reframe. That's the accommodation that we're talking about. Processing speed is another one. So processing language, um, how quickly are they able to hear what's being said to them, formulate their own thoughts, and then get their own thoughts out into the world? It's a terrible um, time for
1: to be fetal alcohol because this world moves so fast, and I see that all the time. Yes. We're moving faster, and our kids can't keep up.
2: <laughs> yes. And so, what do those kids end up doing once they realize that the world is moving so quickly and they're not keeping up? But we as adults expect them to answer instantaneously. It doesn't take them very long to realize that that's our expectation, or else they get in trouble, right? And so, they end up saying, I don't know, or what? or they just shut down like they're uninterested, right? So you have a child in, say, a classroom who never refuses to answer the questions, refuses to participate in the class discussion. That's what it looks like. What if they cannot keep up with the class discussion because they have slow processing speed and their ability to um, communicate is greatly diminished? Then what are they going to do? That's when you see the secondary behaviors, right? The symptoms of that poorness of fit. Nobody's understanding that brain difference shutting down, isolating, acting as though they don't care when really it's a a result of the poorness of fit and no one understanding their brain working differently. The other, the last two categories, one is um, sensory systems. I often think that parents, this is the one they have the most insight into because um, when a child is not able to settle in their environment because of sensory overload or sensory avoidance, um, it's the, the behaviors are pretty obvious. It's pretty easy Um, to make that um, brain connection, right? And we have diagnoses that help us out with that, like sensory processing disorder, that sort of thing. Um, And then the last one is nutrition, which a lot of folks don't think about the brain connection with nutrition, but it's really important. One of the things is um, that I always let parents know is that our brain is only 2% of our body weight, but it requires 25% of the energy that we consume. And so if you have a child whose brain is working harder than anyone else's all day long, they're going to need more energy, to help them stay afloat and make it through that day. But at a certain age, what do we do in schools? We cut out snack time. We don't let them eat when they need to, right? You expect them to have breakfast and be able to make it to the next meal time. What if they can't? And what if it's not about them not eating their full meal and understanding the ramifications of that when that's happening? What if they actually need more fuel? Um, but also things like being able to um, recognize the sensation of being full. A lot of kiddos with brain differences have a very hard time with that. And so they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat until they get sick. Um, So what if they need support around that? What if they need more prompting around that when they eat? Or the opposite could be true as well, where a kiddo who, say, is 12 does not have the same um, sensations of hunger that you would expect for a neurotypical child. And so when they get hungry because they haven't taken responsibility to feed themselves when they're hungry, which we would expect a 12 year old to do right they melt down as like a toddler would when they're hungry. So we see a toddler who melts down because they haven't had anything to eat and we say, "Oh yeah shoot I should have given them a snack an hour ago right They haven't eaten since this time of course they're melting down We would that never crosses our mind with a 12 year old because when a 12 year old's hungry we we expect them to say hey mom i'm hungry can i get something or just help themselves right what if they're not able to recognize that sensation of hunger like a neurotypical 12 year old would do what does that mean for our parenting and the way that we support them in that specific area
1: oh my gosh it's just it's such a huge paradigm shift but we have made some of these changes and once we get over ourselves and the the idea that this is where we are in life we do a lot better so I -hmm. I mean, I know this, it's a battle like every day to remember like, oh yeah, we still need to do that for him, but we, everyone's happier. I mean, he's generally a really happy kid. And when he gets the support he needs, he's fantastic. He just needs a lot of support for 12 years.
2: (laughs) Right. Yep. Yep. And I think that my experience has been that initially parents, when they learn about all the different things that are going on for their child and where all of the poorness of fits. might be happening, it's quite overwhelming, right? And that is a normal reaction to learning that information. But my experience has also been that when a family stays the course and is really invested in this paradigm shift in learning to parent differently, their child settles in the environment, just like you've described, like the happy kid, right? That there is so much more hope than you're ever led to believe those behaviors can calm down but understanding that we're all human right so perfection is not even possible so to kind of take that off the table as you're kind of jumping into this the model itself is very concrete but the implementation of it it has all of these human elements that get it gets messy really quickly so like an example of um I am on board I have parents who are like okay I'm on board but this behavior and that behavior and this behavior are all connected to brain function I see that clearly now I know how I can accommodate them, but this one behavior over here, (laughs) I'm just not sure. (laughs) I'm just not buying it, right? This one seems manipulative, like intentional manipulation. And I say, okay, well, I understand that because we all have deeply held beliefs about what is true, what is right, what is appropriate. And we are all going to have behaviors that clash with those beliefs, Those knee-jerk reactions to behaviors, those are our triggers, right? We all have them. So recognizing, yep, this one here, I can only go so far, and then this one here, I can't, I can't get on board with it. So really understanding that about yourself, knowing that it's because you're human, and then still, how can you stretch yourself and challenge yourself to just ask a different set of questions? Just like, what if? What if this is brain function? Because kids will, they want to do well, right? They would do well if they could. So, if that child isn't doing well, and, and that could look like um, continuously you know, having disconnection in the relationship with them, then what might be else be going on? Just what if?
1: Yeah, I like that. What do you tell parents, or how do you advise parents to chat about this with their children as their kids start to understand maybe they're a little different than their friends? Mm-hmm. Um, my experience with our son is, is he knows just enough. To know that there's a difference, which is has been devastating in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not enough dismaturity to under to be like blissfully unaware. Yes, you know, but yeah. that he understands that there's a difference between what other twelve year olds are doing and what he's doing, and and there's a lot of tension there sometimes because he is twelve and he does. There's a developmental piece of him that wants to start doing twelve year old things, but then there's this yes. other thing that we understand that that's probably not a great idea for anyone. <laughs>
2: So a lot of parents have that question and struggle with that. And the starting point for me always is we need to talk about a way that you can talk to your child about this. So not talking to them, not disclosing to them and helping them understand is not even on the table in my estimation. And the reason for that is because just what you've described, kids know At a certain age, they start to recognize the differences. And if we do not give them the information that they're missing to help explain those differences, then many times what will happen is they start to think of themselves as always the problem, right? I'm the kid who messes up everything. I'm the kid who doesn't have any friends. I'm the kid who can't keep up in class with this and that. And so how devastating to them to go forward in life thinking that versus this idea of, oh, I have a problem. Oh, now that I know it, I can name it, we can identify it, then I can do something about it, right? Having them understand like, yeah, everybody's brain works differently, yours works differently in some pretty significant ways. And let's talk about what that means for you in your everyday. And also, how can you start to accommodate yourself as you get older? Right. So how can you opt out of environments that, you know, are going to be just too chaotic and crazy for you? Right. And kids at a pretty young age, even when they're half their age developmentally, can start to have that insight and recognize that.
1: I like that. And it's so true. Our kids, we've always been pretty open with our kids and there is something really freeing about knowing the truth and knowing this is what's going on, but here's, you know, here are all the great things about you and here are the things that we can do because we know this, we can help support you to make you the most successful you're going to be. And they're not making up false stories about themselves.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say the same goes for siblings. That's another question that a lot of parents grapple with is how do I explain to say a neurotypical sibling What is going on with their brother or sister? And my answer is the same, right? For both those conversations, where are they developmentally? So how do you share in developmentally age-appropriate ways so that they can understand? And also, you know, my great friend and mentor, Diane Malbin, who has done a lot in this field, in this area, she said to me once when I was grappling with the same question long, long time ago, doesn't relationship come from understanding of the other? And if you do not understand the other fully, how can you have a relationship with them? Right? And I thought, oh, well, that makes a whole lot of sense.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. That has huge implications, not just for siblings, but even for us as parents. Like, Oh, totally. Yeah. You know how, how we relate to our kids because we have extra understanding about what's going on.
2: Right? Yes, absolutely. That we're missing all this information that nobody teaches us. So we misunderstand our kids and our relationship with them suffers greatly. But then once we have that information, then we can understand them differently and do something about it and build that connection with them. It's a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah. So along those lines, obviously, you know, going back to a child in a wheelchair, if you wheel a child into a school, no one's going to expect that child to participate in gym class the same way that other children do. There's no explanation needed. There's no extra education needed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Is there a resource or a place to point people to grandparents, teachers, friends that explains this concept, this idea that like my child has a brain injury. And of course we can say that. I mean, obviously we're going to advocate for our children, but I think there's something about behaviors or something about invisible disability that seems to require more in terms of resourcing to those who are on the same team with us working with our children.
2: Yeah. And, and if I had to like give my own you know, from my own experience, what that more is, it's really the invisibility of it, right? That, that teachers, everybody needs to be reminded constantly, like, this is a physical disability, these behaviors are the symptoms. Um, so resources. Uh, so Diane Malvin wrote a book called Trying Differently Rather Than Harder. It's fantastic. Yeah, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> It's great. Yeah. So it's a quick read. What I've encouraged families to do is to just purchase the book. It's fairly inexpensive and highlight the sections that are especially applicable to their child and give it to family members, give it to the teachers, right? Um, If you don't have a, say a teacher, for example, that's going to sit down and read a whole book, (laughs) then there are some short videos out there. Um, Nate Sheets of Organ Behavioral Consultation has some great videos on YouTube. One of them is specifically for teachers. Um, so that's helpful too, if you're going to get more buy-in from them watching a short video than reading an entire book, even as short as Diane's book is. And then the other thing that I would say is that you know, information um, on the neurobehavioral model, once you get that sense, you know, we talked about those nine different brain categories and we went through them again very, very quickly. But once you start to understand which of these brain tasks does my child have an especially difficult time with what rises to the top. And then if you are able to articulate to them like what that looks like in their environment, then they have something concrete to go on. Like, oh, okay. I understand now that he actually does want to do the task I'm asking, asking him to do. He can only hold one direction in his mind at a time. I know that now. So I'll either laminate the directions and put it on his desk so he has it there to reference. Like, Those are the accommodations that people kind of get overwhelmed, like, oh, accommodations, like, that's the end of my life, right? <laughs> all I'm going to be doing is developing accommodations from here till eternity. It's like, no, they're actually very, some, some of them are very, very simple mind shifts, or very little things, like I've just described, that you can put in place. But it's having that information that's missing, so then you actually know what to do, right, to help them settle. Thank you so much for
1: all of those great resources. Um, we'll put links to those videos At the show notes, so folks can access them and find them pretty quickly. Before we close, is there anything else that you really love for parents to know?
2: I think what I want parents to know is that if your child is struggling behaviorally and you have tried, you feel like you've tried everything and nothing is working. But that this model and this idea that we're talking about today with the brain function and neurobehavioral perspective, if that's fairly new to you and you don't feel like you've really dug into that option, I would encourage you to really do what you can to learn more about it and and see if it opens up a new set of possibilities for you. Um, When we have kids who are really, really challenging behaviorally, we are often led to dead ends and that makes us more hopeless. We don't have very many answers out there. And this, I feel like, is a model that works, that our child is capable of being successful in their environment with the accommodations and being joyful. And our family, you know, that our families can have fairly typical lives, right? Um, That's not what we're led to believe. And so I would just want them to know that that doesn't have to be the way it is.
1: Mm, I love that. There's so much hope there. Thank you so much, Eileen, for being here, for your wisdom, for your time, um, for your kindness to parents and just your hope for our kids.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Love talking about this stuff. So really appreciate the opportunity. That was such a great interview. I'm really just
0: thrilled that we had Eileen on and it would be great to have her come back again because This is a a topic that I think reaches a lot of us, and I was surprised that when she talked about not only is it reaching the populations we might typically think of as giving birth to children who've been affected by alcohol or other substances, but she talked about the population of women, Caucasian women, whose children are being very impacted by this and I've also heard another expert on um, FASDs is Ira Chasnoff and I've heard him say that one of his groups that he's concerned about is um, college-age women who are doing a lot of binge alcohol drinking and are also in a very fertile time of their lives and this is another population we may not think of very often in terms of birthing children with FASDs so I, I think it's a very um kind of a mind-opening thought that there are all kinds of children around us in families who probably have been prenatally affected by substances that we may not be thinking of.
1: Yeah, I read a statistic recently that it's estimated that up to 10% of the population could be fetal alcohol affected. And I think it's just something that we have trouble wrapping our minds around because there's a lot of shame if we're raising kids who are by birth, who we think may have been affected and, and not because we were making bad choices necessarily, but maybe we didn't know we were pregnant or someone told us one drink would be okay, you know, all kinds of different things. But it it is estimated that a lot of kids who are suffering kind of have what we call comorbid diagnoses. So diagnoses that also have similar behavioral symptoms, maybe things like ADHD or um, oppositional defiance disorder or something like that some of those may stem from some sort of prenatal alcohol exposure, which um, is really fascinating. And, and while there's a lot of shame around it, I think there's a lot of hope to know that there is this neurobehavioral approach that helps set our kids up for success in society, kind of no matter how differently their brain has been structured and how it's functioning. Um, So I appreciate Eileen's expertise in this area and her hope and, You know, the fact that she's walking through this and she knows that there are still ways to help our kids be successful, kind of no matter what their brain differences are. So if you want to connect with Eileen, you can find her on Instagram or Facebook or her website, fasdnorthwest.com. And she's also FASD Northwest on Instagram and Facebook. We'll have links to all of those in the show notes. She's also provided us with a fantastic download called Starter Strategies and Accommodations for Supporting Individuals with FASD. She walks through in this handout um, those kind of eight realms of brain function that she was talking about, um, you know, nutrition, language and communication, processing pace, um, social skills, learning and memory abstract thinking executive functioning all of those are broken down into this handout with really practical strategies so you definitely want to head over to the show notes and make sure you download that again you can find the show notes at theadoptionconnection.com 40
0: before you go we'd love to connect with you on social media you can find us on facebook or instagram as the adoption connection Thanks so much for listening.
1: We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone.
0: And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you.
1: The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevear.